Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. I'm excited to announce the launch of a spinoff of Capital Allocators called First Meeting. First meeting episodes will be conversations with leading investment managers across asset classes, akin to my past conversations with the likes of value manager Tom Russo, growth manager Paul Black, hedge fund manager Jordi Visser, venture capitalist Josh Wolf, and private equity managers Brent Bishore and Michael Schwimmer. 201 
each manager has reported back that their future meetings with clients and prospects were richer and more productive than before their appearance. First Meeting will seek to catalyze a step change improvement in the due diligence process by sharing more of these conversations that replicate a first meeting an allocator might have with the manager. If you know a manager you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out to me or, better yet, ask the manager to reach out. And for the first episode under the First Meeting brand, I bring you the person most responsible for the creation of capital allocators, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. My guest on today's show is Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Patrick is the CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, the host of the Invest Like the Best podcast, and a great friend. Patrick's podcast and widely read monthly mailing list of books, available at InvestorFieldGuide.com, have made him a celebrity of sorts in the investing world. Those familiar with his voice will already know how wide his curious mind travels, but I imagine far fewer know that much about his daily investing activities. Our conversation begins with Patrick's early start in the business and discovered passion for research. We turn to investing at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, covering OSAM's four core quantitative factors, how those factors work, the research process to dive deeper into each factor and explore new ones, machine learning, differentiated portfolio construction, and the impact of quants on the market. We then turn to Patrick's experience as a podcaster, discussing his conceptual learning loop, lessons from interviewing, and ways he's applied lessons from the podcast to OSAM's asset management business. We close by discussing investing in external managers, including a great nugget on probing quantitative strategies. Patrick and I both finished this conversation feeling we had just scratched the surface, and that might be fodder for a Part B down the road. Regardless, I'm indebted to Patrick for being the catalyst behind the creation of Capital Allocators two years ago, and it was my great pleasure to get him on the other side of the mic. First, an important disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. A manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by me or Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my conversation with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Patrick. This is bizarre. I don't like it. I don't like it already. (laughs) All right. Let's start with you telling me, what was it like to grow up in the household of a quant? Well, it really wasn't a household of a quant in the sense that we didn't talk about investing all that much. There was a lot of discussion of other stuff. I know one of your questions later is what teaching has stayed with you from your parents, and so I'll just give you one right now which was this encouragement to always figure stuff out for yourself. The phrase we had around the house was look it up. So anytime you ask my parents a question, they would say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to give you the answer. Like there's encyclopedias over there. Go figure it out for yourself. So there was no telling us what to think ever. It was always just encouraging us to be curious. So that's what it was like. It was not a quant household. It was a curiosity household. How did that lead you to being involved in the business? So it was just dumb luck. So I was quite a bad student in high school and then quite a good student in college. And I studied philosophy. And when I graduated, like most philosophy majors, I had no clue really what I wanted to do. It just so happened that right at that exact time, literally that month, my dad and his team were leaving Bear Stearns Asset Management to form what's now O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Technically, I joined OSAM as an intern, 
and really just thinking it would be smart to get the opportunity to watch a business get set up and help out where I could. I mean, I was literally looking for office space and putting chairs together and cutting my hands on the chairs. And so there was no agenda other than get the experience of watching a business get set up, an established real big business. And very quickly, I fell in love with the research side of things. And I sort of moved from an unofficial unpaid intern to a junior level research analyst. So it was really just really good timing for me. And that's it. And the rest is sort of history. I had planned on only staying for a few years. And it just worked out that I so enjoyed the business and the research piece that I've been here ever since. Why don't we take a step back and describe what was the premise of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management when you started? It's kind of helpful actually to go really far back, actually to the 80s. And this is, everyone kind of makes fun of me for the Invest Like the Best title of my podcast. It is kind of corny sounding, but it's actually an homage to my dad's first book, which was called Invest Like the Best. The idea in the 80s when he wasn't managing money, he was a consultant to large pension plans, was that he would do some of the first holdings-based analysis and factor profiles of very well-known managers. So Peter Lynch as it would be a great example. And what he found was that a lot of the greats of that era were kind of closet quants, that they had a very consistent factor profile, and that's maybe what governed a lot of their success. And so his first insight was like, wow, a disciplined model works really well. And the models varied. They were completely different from one another. But if you stick to a model, it's a great way to invest. And then it transformed into, well, okay, if we're going to be disciplined about it, like let's figure out what factors are best. Is the Peter Lynch model better or is the Templeton model better? And that led to ultimately managing money in these quantitative strategies. So the evolution goes back a long way. And basically all we do is try to extract signal from data, from activity, from analysis, and build really thoughtful models around that. And so how do the best invest? Well, I think discipline is one obvious part of the answer. Everyone now, we live in the era of process. Everyone likes talking about process over outcomes, which I think is a really thoughtful way to think about this. I think process isn't everything, but I think the best investors do have a process that they return to again and again. I think in very difficult times, if you don't have a process is where investment firms and investors break down. So especially in tough times, having a process is really important. And the Invest Like the Best research basically found that process was critical and all these guys had a repeatable process. Then the question becomes, well, what things work the best? What factors actually work? In our research, luckily, those categories are honestly straightforward and simple. They're things like valuation, things like momentum, quality, return of capital. They're not crazy concepts. You just have to apply them with a lot of discipline. And I think that's where people fall down, that the base rates on these things, which we're obsessed with, and I think all investors should be obsessed with base rates, are maybe like perfectly suboptimal, meaning in 60 to 70% of one-year periods, it's worked historically. But that means there's a lot of times that it doesn't work. And even in two, three, five-year periods, there's times that it doesn't work. So unless you really buy into these concepts at a deep level and are willing to stick with them through cycles... I think you probably shouldn't apply them at all. You shouldn't apply momentum into a one-off trade. You should apply it in the right way, systematically and over a long period. So process is key and then measuring the right things. If you circle back a few years ago, what were the key factors that comprised the core of OCM's quantitative models? It's equities only. Depending on who you ask, we hold for a long time, sometimes 18, 24 months. This is not a stat R story here. We're not trying to forecast next quarter's earnings which is an interesting game. It's just not our game. When you're holding for that long and you think about equities at an elemental level, I think there's just three ways to earn return. The businesses you own grow in sales, earnings, EBITDA, whatever it is, free cash. The multiples of those fundamentals expands or the company returns capital to you. 
And so we think about it through those three lenses and try to sort of target, if you will, those sources of returns in different ways. So just like you want to be diversified across asset classes, we think you want to be diversified across sources of return from the equities. So if you think about those three elemental sources of return, the factors that we use in production all map back to one of those three. So multiple expansion is the easiest, it's valuation. So when you pay less for companies, PEs, free cash flow yields, whatever it is, there's more room for those multiples to expand and you can earn a nice return that way. The downside of that is that typically those businesses are bad and very often the fundamentals of those businesses are declining while you own them as a value investor, but they go on to recover. The market anticipates that recovery. It does its job. And so you re-rate upward and earn a return. So value is the best way to position yourself to earn returns through re-rating. Fundamental growth is really interesting because you can come at this from two sides. The positive side is momentum. So price momentum, the reason that it works when you decompose the returns is because momentum actually does a very good job of positioning you in stocks that go on to have great fundamental growth during the holding period. So their sales, their earnings, their free cash is growing because you bought them for momentum. What fascinates me about this is momentum does a better job of forecasting future fundamental growth than price does. So the highest momentum decile has better future fundamental growth than the most expensive, let's say, PE decile or free cash flow yield decile. So the rate of change seems to matter. That would be the positive way to position yourself in businesses that are growing. And then the negative way is what we would collectively call quality, which we think by and large, gets misused as a term and misapplied in the investing process all over the place because we don't think it's a good positive screen. So buying really high quality businesses is not necessarily in a quantitative sense. Maybe if you're holding for 10 years and you can forecast that, then yes, you want to be a positive quality investor. But in the quantitative sense, high ROEs or gross profitability or whatever your measure of quality is really isn't indicative of strong future excess returns. What's really useful about quality is that very bad quality, so really over-levered balance sheets, companies reliant on capital markets, aggressive accounting in earnings management, aggressive capital allocation decisions, all these things create very large negative excess return. So by avoiding companies with really, really bad quality, we're talking like the worst 10% of companies, you can avoid the worst forward fundamental growth. And so you kind of have it both ways, momentum on the positive side, quality on the negative side. And then the most straightforward is what we call shareholder yield. So this is dividends and buybacks, and that's return of capital. And what we found, the nuance there is that super normally high buyback yields. And a simple definition of this might be a company which is buying back 5% of its shares or more in a one-year period of time, which is a lot. That's a big deployment of capital. That kind of company historically has done extremely well in the US specifically, but internationally too, versus its peer set. So those are sort of the major building blocks. There's a lot that goes on under the hood of each one of those things. At a high level, that's all we're really doing is targeting those sources of returns through diverse means. So let's peek under the hood. Really interesting, this juxtaposition of valuation and momentum. So valuation's easy, right? Low value re-rates higher, and then the stocks do well, but as you just said, they're bad companies, so the fundamentals deteriorate while you own the stock. This concept of price momentum as opposed to business momentum isn't really intuitive. Dive in on that a little bit more and, and tell me what you found. Yeah, so there are certainly quants that use in their signals 
what we would call operational momentum. That could be, you know, the rate of change of any of the things we just talked about. We use earnings. It's just something really simple. And they're related. There's a correlation between those two things. What's fascinating about pure price momentum and the way that we think about this is three, six, nine, 12 month trailing windows of total return versus peers. We think we should also care about the volatility of the momentum. So it's not a sharp ratio in calculation, but conceptually, that's the idea. Like nice, smooth excess return in the last one year period, let's call it. What's interesting about pure price momentum is how much it tells you about operational momentum. So that seems to be the reason that it works is because it's related to the businesses are growing and getting stronger. Does that happen simultaneously or is there a lag? It's hard to say, right? It's hard to parse the causality. All we know is that of the highest momentum decile stocks, just in very, very simple terms, those stocks in the next year have super normally high operational growth. Now, what's really interesting about price momentum is the holding period that you need and the turnover you need to make this strategy work. So if I'm always really suspect when someone says like at this point in the cycle, because I just don't, I don't think we really understand cycles that well. And certainly we don't know where we are in this cycle almost ever. It's something that's hard to forecast, but it does appear like value in the data has a very long payoff window. So if you buy in value today, you on average earn a little bit of alpha for a really long time. Most of it's early on, but you continue to earn marginal monthly alpha for up to 10 years. In the case of momentum, it looks very, very different. So you earn all of your momentum, all of your alpha rather, in the first one year holding period. And then you actually need to get the hell out because it reverts. And typically, depending on where you're looking at the data, within two years or so, it's actually completely inverted and now you're earning negative returns. So there does seem to be something about momentum that it's sort of like the last stage of these companies in some sort of operational growth cycle. And then very often you need to move on and you need to have turnover. So if you're a taxable investor, you know, this is something to consider for momentum to really work, whereas value has this incredibly long runway. So you've taken over OSAM as the CEO over the last year. What changes have you made or how have you evolved the original models while keeping the core discipline framework intact? Yeah. So there's a couple silos. There's the incremental research silo, which would be okay, we really believe in these concepts. And you and I have talked about this before. I love this explore-exploit framework. The general idea is very simple, which is there's kind of a formula for how much time you should spend on completely new stuff. So let's say you move to a new city, finding new restaurants versus going to ones that you've already been to and you know you love. So that would be explore versus exploit. And so in some sense, we do need to exploit. We know that these factors work it's an incredibly high bar to find something that generates what we think is real alpha over the very long term and will continue to do so. So when you have one of those things, like keep working at it, keep getting better. So part of what we do in research is we're actually deep in one of these projects right now on the profitability quality side. Keep trying to measure these things more accurately with new data sets, new calculations, new ways in slicing and dicing these four core concepts we already talked about. So that would be like the first silo. The second would be try to find completely new sources of excess return that are unrelated to those first four. And it is remarkable to me how often we find something that looks good in isolation. And then when you plug it into the sort of master model, it's just one of those other four things. What's an example? So we did a lot of work around like R&D type spending. And when you plug it in, it is both value and momentum in some interesting different ways and sectors. But when you plug it in into the master model as a factor, it was completely gone. It literally didn't move the needle at all. Whereas on its own, we thought it was this kind of interesting, unique signal that maybe the market was undervaluing current R&D spending that paid off in terms of 
nice earning surprises or sales surprises in the future. And, and it looked promising. And then you plug it in and it's just gone. So the second would be stuff like that, something we don't do at all today, entirely new signals to see if we can find something to incorporate into the model. And that is very hypothesis-driven research. So the idea is we literally have a template. The research analyst or PM comes and says, I think that if we measure this about stocks, an example we did last year was ownership data. So who owns all of the companies on every date in history? Really interesting data set, really hard to put together. The hypothesis in this case was maybe a certain ownership profile is indicative of future excess return. The one you always hear is founder-led or CEO with large personal positions, You know the right alignment of interest. And that's an interesting hypothesis. So the idea would be form the hypothesis, make sure it's not overlapping with something we already do, propose where we're going to get the data, how much it's going to cost, how long it's going to take, then get it all if we approve it as a team, run the research and reach your conclusions. So basically scientific method, right? Like apply the scientific method to investing research. So that would be silo number two. And then silo number three is maybe the most interesting because it's the newest, which would be very unstructured kind of machine learning type research. So here you are not forming hypotheses. You are really just gathering data and letting the machines build the models for you. And what I think is so interesting here is that there's still humans involved, of course. And the most interesting thing is what in machine learning is called the labels. So what is the outcome variable that you're trying to target and build a predictive model for? That's sort of like asking good questions. So I think now what's become really valuable in our business is the ability to ask really good questions because with all of these amazing tools, it's easier and easier to answer questions once you've asked them. So that becomes a really valuable skill, asking what the label is going to be in a given study. And I've heard of examples of really compelling label generation as the primary source of alpha. And then just basically feeding it a really good, big, clean data set and letting a random forest go to work, letting a neural net go to work. To be clear, I don't think almost anybody has a lot of that in production today, but those tools are becoming more and more useful. We've spent a lot of time with them. And I would say that's sort of the third research silo that we're pursuing at any given time. If I look at this as evaluating a quant manager and your competition of other quant managers, the hypothesis generation piece, how do you compete with a quant manager? You know, I'm thinking like a Renaissance or AQR that come to mind that are just much bigger than OSAM. So they have a lot more people and a lot more resources. How do you compete with them in coming up with these hypotheses? Well, I guess I'll start at the end of like what the portfolios themselves end up looking like. I think the quantitative community is very homogenous in its background. The firms tend to be founded by people with deep academic backgrounds, often PhDs, and often coming from a similar research tradition in the factor world. This is not a bad thing. This is a very good thing. And I think it's been one of the great things for investors in the last three decades or so, dating back to Fama French's original paper in the early 90s. So the downside, or maybe the competitive advantage from our standpoint, is that there tends to be one very blunt tool in that world, and that's linear regression. When you have a new factor or there's a new paper being written, the question is basically, is there some residual alpha on top of the Fama French three, four, five factor, the Carhartt four factor model? And if there is, great, you get published. And if there's not, move on. I think linear regression is a great tool. I think also these 
quantitative, academic, quantitative people tend to optimize around things like information ratio. So, you know, alpha and tracking error become the really key things that you're targeting. What we found in our research is that just by targeting something different, back to that label being the key in any research study, you get very different results. So we have our legacy as practitioners. We do not come from academia. Our target has always been excess return alpha. We've always cared way, way less about tracking error. And when that's true, you just have drastically different outcomes because it's actually far easier to shape down tracking error than it is to find new alpha. I could run a much lower tracking error process with not that much additional research. I can't just go find new alpha. So the fact that we've always targeted alpha, we think, relative to IR or something, is a big competitive advantage. And the fact that we're not just using linear models, so we don't just have like a stacked linear model where we're predicting some alpha, We are a very nonlinear application of, before that term was cool in kind of machine learning, we really only play in the tails of the distributions of these factors. And usually when we're with allocators, that is the portfolio construction line that makes it click for them about how we're different from every other one of these big quants. And you see it in the portfolios, like our overlaps with other quants are shockingly low. Like we have this little cool program that we can show people this on the fly and they won't believe us. Like they'll ask about AQR and LSV and these other great managers, you know, really, really, really strong competitors. And we'll have like nothing in common, like no holdings in common with them. So as you go to construct your portfolios, how do you use the factors in a different way to create this portfolio that looks very different? So we don't have sort of a master multi-factor formula. I will literally describe the process. So we start with a universe, let's say it's US large cap stocks. We then use these factors that I've talked about, quality, valuation, momentum, et cetera, to remove from consideration the worst decile of each of these groups individually. So what you're left with is like two thirds to a half of the universe after you do this. And again, to highlight why we do that, most of the really interesting return, in this case, negative bad return that you want to avoid is concentrated in the tails and in the worst decile. So we remove that stuff. Then, depending on the strategy, we only are willing to buy stocks within the best decile of what we call ranking factors. So we talked about those earlier, basically value, momentum, and, and shareholder yield. So already, you can see that everything in the middle of the distribution, from 90th percentile to 10th, we care far less about than most quants do. So most quants are interested in the entire distribution. We really are focused on the tails. The byproduct of that is low overlap with other people, much more concentrated portfolios. I use that word carefully because relative to like a stock picker, we are not concentrated. But relative to most quants, we own far fewer stocks. What's a typical number in a portfolio? So in like at the very low end, we might own 60 stocks in a US large cap value strategy, which would be like the most specific. And maybe the most we would own is mid 100s or something in in a different strategy. So oftentimes you'll see quants that have hundreds and hundreds of positions long and and short if if it's long short managers. So less overlap with the benchmark, less overlap with other quants, I think all because of those simple two things. We're targeting something different, just excess return and consistent excess return far less mindful of tracking error than most quantitative managers are. And our application or our modeling is very nonlinear versus linear. And I think those two things explain most of our difference. Can we turn to this AI lens, the kind of the third piece on the stool that you mentioned? You said something that struck me, which is that most quants are not filling their models with this sort of label. You know, we're going to let the machines figure out how to populate it. Help me understand that. Sure. So our co-CIO, Chris Meredith, is a professor at Cornell, and he gets to watch his very bright students, many of whom we end up hiring, 
go through the same frustrating exercise every fall when he teaches the same class. That frustrating exercise is they come in and they think they're going to apply all the fanciest, newest machine learning techniques to build an investment model that predicts returns. And the problem with that is the label. Returns are an incredibly non-stationary thing. Machine learning works very well with stationary variables. So when you try to predict returns, you can feed all the best data in the world to whatever ML algorithm you choose. Let's say it's like a decision tree or something. And if you're trying to predict returns, it always falls apart. It never works. So problem number one is the traditional way we've thought about this, which is the thing we're trying to get is returns. So like, let's try to predict that. It just doesn't really work in the context of these models. It's a very difficult problem to solve. What does seem to work better is trying to predict more stationary things. So if you decompose returns into, let's say, earnings growth is one example. I think that probably makes more sense as a machine learning problem, trying to forecast earnings growth in banks or something like this that's more specific and tangible than trying to just predict returns overall. And if you think about the problem, it's kind of interesting because machine learning is incredibly powerful way of finding patterns and relationships between independent and dependent variables. When you try to predict too many things at once, and a lot of different things cause returns. Earnings growth causes returns. M&A causes returns. A dividend cut causes returns. All these different things which are themselves different from one another. If you try to predict them all at once, the model just kind of falls apart. So as a result, we have started to focus more on applying these techniques to focus on something like a dividend cut. Let's use that as an example. Build a model that just forecasts or predicts dividend cuts, and that's it. And then you figure out how to use that in the overall model. The other way that it's, we think, most interesting is just building data sets. So when you think about scraping like an 8K or a 10K or something for some set of information, I could go onto an 8K and scrape information on buyback programs incredibly effectively using some of these techniques. So there are kind of like edge cases where we've started to really use them. Probably the most tangible is like building data sets, not building predictive models. So building data sets, classifying data into groups, things like that, clustering, all that, all that kind of neat sort of stuff that hopefully lets us then have some insight. But we've never found a way, and I don't think anybody has, to just have some amazing fancy algorithm to predict returns at the market level. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle. Helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. If you think about how markets are behaving right now, there's a lot of questions about the impact of quant investing and how it compares and impacts kind of traditional fundamental valuation or fundamental movements of stocks. What's your perspective on the impact of quants on the market? 
It was funny. I was at a dinner last night with a couple really talented traditional discretionary managers. And I was introduced as a quant. And one of the guys goes, ah, the enemy. And I think that's actually true. I think that quants are in some ways the enemy of old school stock picking. And just like I love the Mark Andreessen quote, software is eating the world. I think the same could be said of quant sort of eating investing. That if there is a repeatable strategy where we can build a big enough sample size and do the right kind of research, a quant is going to figure it out. And the, the question is when, not if. So if you are doing something that is purely based on a pattern in the data or something, it's probably not going to be a lasting edge for you as a discretionary fundamental manager. I think that's where the power of human analysis, sort of the analytical piece of this, quants are never going to be able to do that, right? So if you can handicap future scenarios based on all that you know about a business or an industry or or a trend or whatever it might be, that's going to be hard for quants to replicate. And if you can concentrate in portfolio construction, that's also going to be very hard for quants to replicate. So I can't build a 10-stock portfolio. It just doesn't work. So if you can do those two things very well, there's probably always going to be a place for talented, discretionary, thoughtful analysts and PMs. But I do think that quant will continue to infringe on maybe things that worked well in the past. And to the extent that you're an active investor, an active manager, a mutual fund manager or something, that's basically a value manager that can be replicated by the value factor. And by the way, that's very easy for us to tell like whether or not a manager is one of these kind of closet factor managers or not, then usually a quant can do it for a lot cheaper. And that will show up as investor surplus rather than fees for active managers. So that's kind of how I think about it, that through concentration and through really thoughtful analysis, discretionary managers can continue to do well. But if there's a data set and a quant can find it, eventually they will. I want to turn to something that I know you spend some time on, which is the podcast. How did you get started with Invest Like the Best? So it's a really kind of boring, simple story, which was I was having lunch with Jeff Graham and Jeff had just come out with his book, Dear Chairman. And I I loved the book and that's how I met Jeff. So I had back then I had this habit when I read a book that I liked, I tried to email the author and get lunch or something. So I'd done that with Jeff. And he said, or I said at the lunch, wouldn't this be cool if we recorded this and shared this with people? And so we did that just as an experiment. And like, I'll never forget, like 571 people the first week listened to this for whatever reason. And I just really enjoyed it. And I thought, I said to our mutual producer, Matthew Passy, I said, I think I'm going to do seven of these and like, see how it goes. And then maybe I'll do another seven, like six months down the line or something. But it probably seems like it's going to be a lot of work. So, you know, I don't have time to do this. And then I did one with Jason Zweig and one with Michael Mobison and kind of went down the list of people that I knew in the industry. And I just had a blast doing it. It's, as you know, it's incredibly fun to sit and talk to smart, thoughtful people about what they've learned in their careers and their lives. And it's just sort of been easy to maintain ever since then. There's an endless supply of interesting people and I'm sort of interested in just about everything. So it's kind of that simple. Like there's no magic to it other than I really like talking to people that are willing to share what they've learned. And how'd you go from a background as a quant to, you know, exploring things like venture capital and crypto with your guests? I mean, I think kind of the process everywhere is the same. We call it here like the learning loop, right? And I'd love to talk about this in detail because I think it's useful for anybody. So on our website, if you go to the website, the first thing you see in big big blue letters is this four words, learn, build, share, repeat. So think about that as a loop and it's a learning loop, right? So I think the research we're doing, the reading that I love to do independently, the conversations I've had with VCs, like all this stuff is basically just the same loop over and over again. So what does that mean? It means collecting 
raw information. That's sort of the learn piece. Build a map of something. Understand who's doing what, what's important. I love business and investing. Those happen to be my fields. I'm really interested in how value is created, how businesses capture that value in a defensible way through time, and then how you can find that that's mispriced, right? So in my world, it's value that's mispriced that matters. I guess really in all investing, it's value that's mispriced that matters. So those are the questions that animate me. And I think it's just as interesting to talk to a VC about these same ideas as it is for me to do a study in the public market. I've done a lot of that myself. I'm more interested in other areas of the business and investing world to try to inspire new ideas in my world. And that's basically it. I'm just curious, want to figure out what's going on, talk to the best people, figure out the levers that matter, sort of factors everywhere, (laughs) and then try to share those ideas. What have you learned about interviewing? So- I mean, you do it very well, and I think you've gone on the same progression that I have. When I I listened to an early episode just a couple days ago, just out of curiosity, and I was blown away by how much I was talking. And that's why I said at the beginning, I don't like this at all. Like, I, I would prefer to be asking the questions than answering them. And so the major change is just learning how to listen very well. A guy named Eric Maddox who I had on my podcast, I encourage everyone to go listen to that episode if if you're interested in this listening topic. But I prepare way less, almost none at all, which is nice. It takes less time. And the reason I do that is if I prepare too much, like then the thing just went exactly as I would have expected. If I don't prepare, then I'm just listening and just having a conversation and we can go down whatever paths seem most interesting to the person on the other side of the table. So less preparation, way less talking. Like my guess is that the audio where it's me and in our episodes is maybe 10%, probably similar for you. And so way less talking and just really trying to pay attention to people and what they're really interested in versus what I'm interested in and want to get out of the conversation. People are way better at talking about stuff they're interested in than what you're interested in. (laughs) Those are probably the main lessons. And as you've gone through this learning process piece, what have you taken from it and then turned into a build as it relates to your investing? So let's talk through this loop because I think it's really important. There's a couple other people that have written about this just to give some props of thoughtful thinking. Albert Wegner is probably the best at Union Square Ventures in his book, World After Capital or something like that. He has a section or subsection called the knowledge loop. And it's a similar formulation to what I'll talk about. But I've thought a lot about this and I think it's basically the bedrock of of what we're going to do. And there's a compounding story here as well. But I think each of these sections is, is equally important. So learn to start may sound obvious, but I just firmly believe you can't ever rest on your laurels. I love this Isaac Asimov quote from one of the Foundation Trilogy books, which is like one of my favorite sci-fi books, which is past glories are poor feeding. I just love that idea that like never have awards and, and be happy with where you are because other people are working hard to push the frontier out. So learn is a reminder to all of us, like no one's ever got it figured out. You need to keep trying to get better. You can't just have a fixed model, even in quant. You have to evolve what you're doing. And the best way to do that is just be insatiably curious, gather as much information as you possibly can, talk to as many people as you possibly can, just be relentless about it. So that's the learn piece. But that's really not enough. And I'm a firm believer that you don't actually learn stuff by just collecting information. When you actually learn is converting information into something that is uniquely your own. So this gets to the build piece. I think this is probably the most fun and certainly the most challenging and the most interesting stage of this loop. So by building something, and you could substitute the word teach or write or you know really any sort of creative output, it makes you realize how little you actually understand the information itself. 
And it's basically a forcing function to codify what you're actually learning. I'll use my case as an example. This started very small. So it started as a book club, basically. This is, I don't know, six, seven years ago or something. So I love to read. And every month I would get, my friends would ask me what I like to read. So I said, I'll just build this little email where it forces me to summarize the books I loved this month, why I love them, favorite quotes, like do some work with the information. And so just doing that has been amazingly powerful because it forces me to like go back to the book and really think through it again and, and be thoughtful about like other people's time. And then the share component here, of course, is that I email it out, right? So that would be the first example. The podcast is another example where I'm talking to somebody, I'm producing something, I'm making something out of it, and then I'm sharing it again. So the same thing happens over and over and over again. And in our case as a business, building, we've got a pretty strict rule around OSAM when it comes to building. You can't just do a research study and if it doesn't work, just like forget about it. You need to bring it into our ecosystem in a way that can be useful in the future. So I used that ownership data example earlier. So one way it would be, okay, we built it, we looked at it, we didn't find anything, like forget about it. Instead, what we do is we cross the finish line with building the data set and building a live production process to maintain that data set into the future. So now we've got an asset, right? And, and that's a pain. It would be far easier to just jettison the thing take some notes that we didn't learn anything and, and move on. But what happens is now we've got this data set that we can return to and maybe a smarter, better researcher in the future finds something that we didn't find. Maybe we can use it in other ways. So now this ownership data set fuels another software tool that we have here called X-Ray, which allows us to do diagnostics on other managers and other strategies that is very dependent on this ownership data set. I just think there's always ways of like taking the raw learning and converting it into something productive and useful. And in doing that, you force yourself to be a much better learner. And then the share piece is often the most fun and maybe the one we get asked about the most as quant managers, which is like, why in the world would you tell people when you found something? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all. Like, it seems like literally the exact opposite of what you would want to do. And in every one of these cases with the book club, now I used to have to look for books, but because I share it, now I get inbound way more books that I even know what to do with. So every book I read basically is from somebody on that list. With the podcast, I used to have to go look for the marginal guest. Now virtually every guest and interesting person is inbound. So by virtue of putting something out in the world, the fact that it's digital and free to reproduce is very helpful. You create this incredible two-way street of feedback, this incredibly tight feedback loop. In quant research, this is really interesting, which is that you actually get a stronger signal, we found, when you share your general findings, not necessarily the code or the particulars, but the general findings with a broad audience, then all of a sudden you're stress testing this idea against like the most brilliant people that are just curious themselves that then give you feedback. So the feedback mechanism, the share part of this, I think is one very fun, but also critical for quality improvement that by exposing ideas, whether it's books or, or conversations or quant studies or whatever it is to thoughtful external participants, you get this incredibly virtuous cycle that can keep spinning. So we just believe very deeply in this loop. And by the way, I think literally every human should figure out a way to build these loops for themselves. It's incredibly fun, you learn a lot, and you create productive stuff. So those are the ways that we've done it, but I think it's a very broadly applicable concept. This last piece in the share in quantitative lessons, how do you balance putting out something that you discover that could have alpha and getting critical feedback that could improve what you're doing versus the risk that the alpha you've discovered will go away as soon as you shared it? 
Yeah, so um, this gets to kind of Mobison's great framework of the sources of excess return. And if you believe in this simple framework, which is basically behavioral, informational, analytical, and trading or structural, the share component is especially effective with something that is rooted in investor behavior. So I would argue all the factors that we use here have a behavioral component or at least a compelling behavioral explanation for why they work. People have known about value investing forever. People have known about momentum investing forever. And yet they have continued to work. Not value so much in the last seven years, but the other ones have done very well decades after their original and very prolific publication. So that says something, right? That says that the source of the excess return is not knowing about the thing. It's doing the thing. When that is the case, we're very comfortable putting something like that out into the world. I was talking to Cliff Asnes about this, and he had a great little story where he said there was like one time where they were having an internal fight about sharing, and they decided not to do it. And then somebody else published it, you know, a year later or something. He's like, God damn it, we should have just shared the thing and then accrued the benefits as a business. And so I, I think that that when there's behavior behind the reason the thing works, it's great to share. When it is pure informational edge, then I think it's a much more interesting conversation. And if someone showed up on my doorstep with some proprietary data set that clearly predicted something that we're interested in that we didn't think anybody else had, I'm not sure how openly we'd be sharing that. But those things don't grow on trees. And that's a very competitive world. The kind of quarterly earnings prediction rat race is, is hard. So maybe the informational edge would be a great reason to not share as openly or as much. But if it's rooted in behavior, I would argue you should always share. As you distilled a lot of the lessons about businesses, and mostly from your work, but again, the podcast, and then also doing it, how have you applied some of what you've seen to OSAM as a business now that you're leading it? I would say it's the most fun thing I've gotten out of the podcast is lessons from the worlds of technology, I guess we'll call it generally speaking. So it's not just VC and startup, but big public technology companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and asking whether or not we can apply those principles to a very simple old school asset management business. And the answer, at least in my view, unequivocally so far is yes. <laughs> and nobody else is doing it or at least they're not doing it holistically as part of how they think about running their business. So we'll take a few examples. So the platform business model is one that I'm fascinated by. And it's the, the simplest ex explanation of this would be like a two-sided marketplace like Uber or Airbnb. So you've got sort of this, we'll call it a platform that sits in between a demand side, you know, people that want to ride or somewhere to stay and a supply side, people that are willing to drive or give up their home or their apartment. And Airbnb and Uber sit in the middle and facilitate those transactions. They reduce search costs. They provide tools to allow the consummation of those transactions. They provide rules and guidelines. They're, they're sort of this kind of middleman, almost like a marketplace. So the question is, could you apply some concept like that to investing? Which doesn't really seem like it would work, right? Other quants have tried it. There's firms like WorldQuant and Quantopian. In the cryptocurrency world, there's a firm called Numerai. So there's a small group of people that have tried to kind of apply this model. And then the second big thing I'm interested in is just technology companies that are primarily tool builders. So my favorite example here is Amazon Web Services. I've become obsessed with its history and other firms that do this sort of thing, which is to ask the question, can we take stuff that we do already internally and instead of having them be a cost center, turn them into a profit center by offering them as services to third parties. And that's basically Amazon Web Services, that's cloud, that's all of these things. Those are the two questions that we asked of our business was, one, can we open up 
our architecture and expose ourselves to others, whether that's researchers or whatever? And can we use tools that we already have internally to do a lot more than we currently do with them? So one phrase I always use around here is like, we built the Death Star to shoot a mouse. Like we've got incredibly sophisticated systems and technology that we just built because of how our business is run. We're a separate account business, so we have to manage thousands and thousands of accounts across a lot of different custodians at any given time. This is complicated stuff. And the third party solutions just didn't fit our needs. So we built a lot of tech over the years, but we're just using it as an audience of one in a very narrow, specific way. So the question is, what else could sit on top of that architecture? So it started with what we call Research Partners. It's a, a program. It's not a platform in the purest sense, but the reason we came up with the idea is because of studying these platform businesses, which was to say, okay, we've got the toolkit, like Uber's got all of its technology sitting in the middle. Our equivalent of that is we've got amazing data, we've got really good systems and programming libraries, and we've got a really smart research team. So what if we just offered that toolkit up to the most interesting, eclectic, thoughtful researchers we could find that aren't in finance and see what happens. We now have seven of these people. It started with a very well-known anonymous writer who goes by Jesse Livermore online. He was sort of our pilot case. And a lot of the most interesting stuff we found as a business has been through these partnerships with these distributed, diverse researchers. All the most fun things we've done, and I think the most value creative things we've done, have been directly inspired by the technology world, the software world, and the startup world. So let's go into that a little bit. Take Jesse Livermore as an example on Twitter. Is that where you're finding these researchers? Yeah. So there's a, another guy that I met, again, a good example of this feedback. So I've been very open about like learning in public and sharing stuff. I'm, software is one of these things. As a result, I get people calling me. So like I've talked to executives from Microsoft and Amazon and all these places who just are interested in talking about this. They're just curious and they just want to share what they've learned. So you get like this weird privileged access to the world. I like the way that one incredibly sharp software guy by the name of Zach Cantor described this to me, which is he said, nobody really understands that Twitter is kind of like the closest thing if you have a big high quality following to owning an artificial general intelligence. That having a big, smart, diverse group of people that follow you on Twitter is literally like having an AGI. I believe that that is true. It's the best search engine in the world. So if you're looking for something, ask a big group of people, you're going to get far better results than the best Google search or whatever. It has incredible domain specificity. So I happen to be followed by software people and investors and business people, right? So all of a sudden you now have access to this like deep group of incredibly smart thinkers. And then I think Bill Gurley said this best, which is something like pick your domain, something like 30 to 50% of the most thoughtful people in that domain are going to be on Twitter talking about what they do. It's an incredible hub for intellectual exploration. And most of the most fun and interesting people I've met have been through Twitter, which is crazy. So Jesse, as we'll call him, I met probably five years ago. And first, we just kind of got to know each other on text and on the phone. And then we did a research study together. This is probably four plus years ago now on profit margins, something we were both interested in. And when I had this idea for research partners, he was the first person I approached. He's an incredibly careful, thorough, deep thinker who does a great job of blending the statistical and the analytical frameworks for thinking about things. We're very biased towards the statistical or quants. He is somehow able to straddle these two worlds in just a remarkable way. And so he finds stuff. When you give him good data, it's like a superpower. 
And that's what we've seen thus far. At this point, when this comes out, we'll probably have published this incredible paper that he just wrote about the history of U.S. profitability. So he tackles these crazy big topics. And despite using a pseudonym of a famous trader, he's not from inside the industry. No, he's not in finance. I don't think he wants to be. He wants the flexibility that comes with this program. And so our deal with people is it's a very simple trade. You do whatever work you want, whenever you want it, with or without our team, using our toolkit. And like that's basically it. <laughs> we own the intellectual property. So that's a really important piece that for finance professionals might be a barrier. But for people that are sort of from different walks, we've got really interesting computer scientists, ex-Google and Microsoft machine learning experts that love investing. They just want the data and the toolkit and the group, the community. So in each case, the trade is a little bit different. But our flexibility, I think we earn a high return on our flexibility with these people. And then what we did is we used our relationship with him to market to other thoughtful partners. And sure enough, they've come inbound mostly and then evaluate them one by one. I'm curious to ask, have you thought about quantitative methods or the application of quantitative investing in private markets? If I'm right, that if quant will eat it, it will. I think that it's starting. You see some firms that are, if not pure quant, heavily quant driven in their private investing approach. I did a podcast with a guy named Ryan Caldbeck from a firm called Circle Up, which is the one that pops most immediately to mind. But it's basically a quant process evaluating consumer skews for you know momentum in sales and literally even like colors on packaging, you know the things that resonate that lead to revenue growth. That's their label, right? They want to see revenue growth in the private markets. So I think it's very, very, very early days and it's beginning to happen. But again, the same problems and then some additional ones in private markets apply. If you're going to build a concentrated portfolio of a handful of positions, you can't do quant. It can't be pure quant. The stats don't work. You need to build a pretty diversified portfolio for a pure quant approach to make sense. Now, might like AngelList or a company like that be in a really interesting position to do something like this? I think so. I don't believe that they do that today, but that's the kind of firm that has a, the N of the universe is big enough that they could start to apply some really thoughtful quant approaches. So I think what you'll see first is that quant is starting to be a tool in the toolkit of private investors. The other hurdle though, is just the relationship and the deal side of this is I've learned through experience with our friend Brent is just such a critical and central piece of success in that world that especially as you get into the more interesting parts of the market, not the really competitive best price wins, big buyout type private equity, but the more nuanced relationship dependent founder led private equity or something like this, then your relationship with the seller, your skill in negotiation and deal structure, all of these things are critical. And again, can quant help inform some of that? Probably, but I don't think it's ever going to completely eat the whole thing. So I think quant in private markets is coming. It's starting. There's some very early examples of it that are compelling and interesting. I've never seen a like a really good live out of sample result, not because there haven't been any. I just think it's too early. So it's something I'm watching and we're really interested in as a firm. We're not actively doing any research to try to get into that world, but I wouldn't be surprised if we are in 10 years because I think it makes sense if you can get good data sets and predict stuff better than you should. In a couple of your podcast episodes, you mentioned the names of some people that you've invested with through your family office and some of the activities you've done. You mentioned Brent Bishore at Adventures. You mentioned The Graveyard. You wrote a piece about analyzing quantitative managers. So how do you think about investing in other managers? 
So the podcast for me is and will always be a very pure curiosity machine. I don't really have clear ulterior motives where like I am trying to do thing X, Y, or Z. Maybe the one slight caveat to that or exception to that is we are really interested in making high return investments as a firm, as a family, me individually. And I don't believe that 100% of the best returns are going to come from our quant strategies forever into the future. I have the vast majority of my personal money and the partners of the firm have a vast majority of their money in our own public equity strategies. But I think it would be foolish to think that that's the only and best place to put money. So several years ago, we began making smaller investments externally. And some of the classic ways, you know, just really simple, straight, direct deals early and later stage, typically with people that we knew exceptionally well. So this is not our trade. So we need to have deep, deep trust with the people that we get involved with. What the podcast made me realize was, wow, there's some really interesting strategies out there that are completely different and unachievable based on our skill set and our toolkit. Perhaps we should get into business formally with some of these teams and again, earn a high return on our flexibility. So because we're not managing anyone else's money in this, at least at this point, we can afford to structure things in really creative ways to meet the needs of the counterparty and to accomplish a sort of win-win scenario. And so I do view the podcast as sort of my search for other interesting people to become business partners with. And in the 130 episodes, roughly it's one out of every 10 or maybe a little bit more than that where we've become really close either business partners or deep friends, me personally or, or us more broadly speaking, with one of these guests. So it, it is a discovery mechanism that we use, even though that's not the primary purpose of the podcast. So the two examples we seeded is the wrong word because it's not like a seed in your former life. It was an investment, a traditional direct common equity investment in the management company of a, a hedge fund called Deep Basin Capital. Deep Basin, I've known the founder for most of my adult life and is one of my closest friends. Also, I think one of the most talented and absolutely relentless investors, you know him too, that I've ever met. And of the people outside my family that I would give my money and family to in the case of my untimely death, he's one of the very short list, as is Brent. So we made an investment to help capitalize their business like a technology business because it's a merging of, he used to work at Citadel. The other team that was sort of the part of the core founding team was a data science team that has roots way back in the Department of Energy, actually. So it's an energy long short commodity neutral, market neutral, factor neutral, idiosyncratic risk hedge fund. And we just thought these teams were beyond exceptional. And we've learned a ton. OSAM has learned a ton from watching them. They're actually in our offices here, totally separated, but physically in the same location. And so it was a great first experiment at backing another manager and trying to both learn from them and see where we might improve our process, watch them, be around really smart, talented people. And they've been hugely successful. You know, I think probably one of the most successful hedge funds of the last couple of years in terms of their early returns and the assets under management that they've been able to garner from really, really good investors. What was striking about what you learned from them and watching them at the same time? So the work that they do on the data science side fascinates us. So this is a great example of how data can be thoughtfully used in a more traditional fundamental discretionary process. So they're building company models around, let's say, upstream oil and gas businesses. NAV is a, is a really interesting data point for those businesses. What is the acreage that these companies own worth, right? And there's incredible amount of data in the energy world, wellhead data, pipeline data, et cetera, et cetera. 
and with deep domain expertise of how to normalize, standardize, cross-compare you know, a well and the depletion in a well or all these kind of really hard things with data, they then pipe that data into very traditional company models to hopefully have a better assessment of what the acreage in this case is literally worth and then basically compare that to what the market thinks it's worth and then the gap is your alpha. And so watching them work with a really tricky hyper-specific data set has been very inspiring for us. Typically, quants don't do deep industry sector-specific data sets outside of like financials, which has been like a common problem for quants. Quants typically are looking for something you can compare cross-sectionally across the entire population of stocks. And what this has inspired in us is more of a willingness of diving into particular parts of the market where you need domain expertise and data is especially messy and can be used more than the way that a traditional quant would use them. And so watching them and talking to them about that has been probably the most fun for us. So how about Brent Bishore and Adventures, which you know, is not a quantitative driven approach by, you know, in any way, shape or form? Yeah. Well, probably what Brent does is actually closer to what we do than what Deep Basin does. So I think Brent is, when I first talked to him, looking back to those three sources of return that we talked about at the very beginning, that's what he's doing. So multiple is incredibly important for him. And, you know, when he first told me that he was buying businesses at a little bit north of four times free cash flow, you know, I kind of laughed. I thought, okay, like, so they're going out of business in three years. I mean, in the public markets, that multiple means the business is massively distressed in a very small business. That's not necessarily the case. And often these businesses are growing. So entry multiple was one I think key source of his edge, and he has incredible discipline around that multiple. So his process is clear, right? It's very repeatable, very clear. The quality of the business then, for him, it's a lot different than what we do. Similar concepts, right? Looking at sustainable advantage and moat, uh, to use that overused term, and quality of the businesses, you know, what the balance sheets look like, all of these sorts of things, customer concentration, these would be proxies for quality metrics. And then they also care about the trajectory of the business when they're buying it, whether it's cyclical or non-cyclical, or there's a lot that goes into Brent's process. But basically, he was sourcing the same things that we were sourcing in the public markets. He was super disciplined and process-oriented about it. And he had a clear built-up advantage in the sense that he had spent almost a decade marketing to business sellers. So he has this brand in that community as an excellent permanent buyer of typically often founder-led businesses. So he had built up an edge that was clear and demonstrable. He had a process and he kind of did what we were doing. So I actually think there's quite a lot of alignment. He just gets to pay way better prices than we do. And when you're thinking about how people should analyze quant managers, what are some of the key things that you would use to assess other quant managers? So maybe it's a good excuse to talk about this concept of a research graveyard. I think this is a great first question for quants, which is to ask them to detail their failed projects in as much detail as possible with as much breadth as possible. I think that a really good quant, you know them when you meet them when you're in this business, has just tried a lot of stuff and failed a lot of different ways. And that the best way to know that someone's going to be an effective and efficient researcher going forward into the future is that they know what not to do. And I think the only way to do that is to build up that experience of failure through time. We call it a graveyard. So like, I'll give you one example. I always joke that this like has a mausoleum in our graveyard. You know, it's one of our big, big and persistent failures. It's a very compelling idea that I would love to be able to time when I'm a value investor, when I'm a momentum investor, when I'm a quality investor and shift around based on prevailing market conditions. Factor timing would be the term here. 
And I desperately want this idea to work. I just think it makes sense that there are some environments more friendly than others for these different factors. And a quant strategy which rotated between factors versus having a fixed allocation sounds really neat and interesting. We have burned an insane amount of our time, capital, human capital, stress, just every kind of capital trying to make this work, and it has not. Now that we have this mausoleum in our graveyard, the next time an analyst comes to us and says, I propose this project, the bar is ridiculously high for us to approve time spent on this project because we've tried it from so many different angles. So I think having a big research graveyard, another way of thinking about this, like the only way to get good at research is do a lot of quant research. That is an accumulating advantage to use Keith Raboy's term, which I really like, that is easy to test in a quant manager. Because if you start digging down onion layers, asking about failures, why it failed, what they did with the data set, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I think you'll very quickly realize how much work they've actually done. And then I would have much higher confidence in the stuff that they actually do have in production because I would have thought it went through the same process. The other thing I would focus on is the data. So back to that idea of machine learning, sort of democratizing access to predictive power, making prediction much cheaper than it used to be. You know, in the 90s, if you had some people that were really good with prediction modeling and PhDs in this area, it represented a huge advantage. I think that advantage is far less today. I think the boring and tedious and unsexy part about what we do is all the hard work is on the data side. Figuring out what data to get in the first place, which is sort of hypothesis-driven, getting the data in feeds that we can manage, scrubbing and normalizing the data, which is always a disaster and always takes three times as long as you think, even when you know that that's going to be the case. It's a huge amount of time. We once spent three full years, the entire team spent three full years just cleaning and scrubbing data in our primary data set. And it's really hard to do. And so I would focus with quants on how much emphasis do they have on the raw information going into the process and I don't think there can be enough. Like, I think it's great to find a quant that's really focused on that because I believe that the predictive modeling part of this is going to get easier and easier. So what that means is what you put into those models is of critical importance. So the graveyard and the focus on data would be two things that I would think about. You want them to have thought about why the thing that they're testing is working in the real world. And certainly in those first two silos I mentioned earlier, incremental factor research and new hypothesis-driven factor research like they better have a really deep understanding of like why is the market making this mistake? Why is it in the past? Why is it today? Why might it continue into the future? What are the limits to arbitraging this away? Is it behavioral? Whatever. A deep mechanical understanding of the source of the alpha is really key. And then in that third silo, I'm, I'm honestly less well-versed. I'm not a PhD in machine learning. So I don't know what the perfect questions would be to ask that group of people. It's a different group of questions, but same level of rigor I think would be important. One piece of the puzzle you haven't mentioned at all is shorting stocks. Have to think that you spent some time looking at that. So what's your perspective on shorting and what have you learned from your research? We've done it with our own capital three times and failed miserably each time. Not in absolute return sense, but certainly in opportunity cost sense because it's been during this great run-up. So we've lost a lot of return with our own capital trying to do this. Our way that I described before of more concentrated, more nonlinear application of quant models really does not lend itself too well to a long short strategy. So the problem is most of the stuff that screens as screaming shorts and in a paper portfolio works incredibly well. You have incredible problems with borrow availability, with borrowing cost, which often instantly removes the paper alpha and with volatility. So 
in a good, I think a really thoughtful long short strategy, a really good risk matching of the long and short book, whether that's through sectors and industries or you know other means is really critical and important. And what we found is when we just try to get the pure short alpha side right, they're incredibly volatile or we can't even get them in the first place. And so the overall portfolio just sort of falls apart. So the expression of our negative excess return in our world is just to not own it. We can only be underweight a certain percentage. That's So we're like limited, which is too bad. But at least we still get to take advantage of the information. I'm not saying we'll never do long short, but in our attempts thus far, honestly, we have failed for those three reasons. All right, Patrick. Let's turn to some closing questions. And of course, we'll end with yours. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So we do this together sometimes, so you, you know it. It's basically just time in the woods. So whether that's running or hiking or sitting by the river or whatever, just outside in general. But I live near a very large, like thousand acre state park. And basically any spare time I get, I either go in there myself to run or bring a friend or a couple of friends in to hike. And I do that a lot. It's If you added up the hours <laughs> that I'm in there, it's significant. So that would certainly be my number one. And then I think of this kind of as work. A lot of this stuff blends together for me. But you know, I still am a voracious consumer of content, books, videos, you know, conversation, whatever. I'm just really interested in learning about different stuff. So I try to fill my spare time up with that as well. What's your biggest pet peeve? I know you're going to ask about lessons from parents. And, and this is definitely one that dates back to my parents instilling this in us, I really hate whining and complaining. If someone is whining and complaining, that's a big problem for me. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? My biggest investment pet peeve is that I think the bar for an investor of any kind doing anything but very low cost index type investing should be very high. And that the vast majority of stuff you hear people talking about as, I'll call them signals, I won't even call them factors, but like something that you should care about or might matter. Turn on any TV, right? You hear all of these things. And I don't think anyone ever asks the question like, does this matter at all? Like, is there any evidence that this stupid chart or this unemployment number or all the data that's lobbed at you as in a narrative sense, seeming like it's going to have meaning for you? Like, shouldn't we just ask the question like, does this ever mattered? And if not, why do I care? Why are we talking about this? And I think the vast, vast majority of stuff is presented as if it matters when in fact it does not. And that bothers me a lot because I think it leads to very bad decisions. I think when you bombard investors with noise, our bias is action. And most action is not justified for investors. So that's my pet peeve is holding things out as if they matter when in fact they don't and not doing the work to see if they matter in the first place. I usually ask some question about reading And the question I want to ask you is that with all the reading and media that you consume, how do you fit it into your day? I don't really know. I mean, I guess it's just kind of constant, meaning if I am trying to think through a problem, I'll often just set aside work time to read everything I can on that problem. So software, we talked about earlier, I've read an insane amount about software in the last three or four months. And that's sort of at any time of the day. I get up early and I read in the morning. I read at night. I read on planes. I read on trains, wherever my downtime is. I listen to podcasts when I run sometimes. When I'm in the car, I just kind of fill the empty spaces with the stuff I like to learn about. So this one may be repetitive from your opening comments, but if it is, I'll just edit it out. So let's try it anyway. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? We've mentioned a couple of these ideas. I think I'm lucky in the sense that a lot of ways, but I have very good family soil is what I would call it. 
not just my immediate family, but my broader family. So kind of starts on both sides, but most notably maybe on my dad's side of the family with a guy who had the coolest name ever. His name was Ignatius Aloysius O'Shaughnessy, IA for short. So IA was born 100 years before me in 1885 and was a incredible entrepreneur, a huge oil wildcatter in the Midwest. And in today's terms, had he not given all of his money away, basically would have been you know, a billionaire, extremely successful. There is this entrepreneurial mythology in my O'Shaughnessy side of the family, which is remarkable down through the generations. So I guess I'm third, fourth generation in every branch of the family, which is a massive Irish Catholic family. There are these crazy stories of entrepreneurial success, some still in the oil business, lots in completely different businesses. There is this deep sense of calculated risk-taking and sort of an entrepreneurial mindset and an action-first mindset that certainly I got from both my parents, but it has its roots deeper in this kind of really cool broader family tradition. So calculated risk-taking would be something that that I think I'm pretty good at that is directly the result of being told that was okay from a very early age and encouraged. I'm already mentioned, don't whine or complain. <laughs> you know, I think when it comes to parenting, my dad and mom told me one time, you don't need to set a lot of lines, but you should pick some lines that you draw in the sand and then stick to them. And so there's a certain number of hills you should be willing to die on and then be flexible on everything else. And one of those hills for them was whining and complaining. And so that stuck with me and we do that with our kids as well. And then I'll close just by saying it again, because I think it's so powerful, this idea of look it up, right? Like don't spoon feed anything to your kids, give them great support and everything like that and keep them safe, but let them figure stuff out for themselves is a nice gift to give to kids, I think. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew earlier in your life? This actually relates to reading and stuff we talk about all the time, which is I wish I had earlier on been forced or tried to build something and then sell it. I think there is nothing more clarifying than that simple exercise. And you can do all the reading in the world, and I still love to read, and I still recommend people read a ton. But as I've grown older, I actually recommend people probably read less and less as they get older and do more and more. And I wish I had started that a little bit earlier because I read so much and I spent so much time just like collecting information and back to my learning loop, right? Like I was doing all learning, no building and no sharing and building and sharing are what sharpen the sword and make you realize how incredibly hard it is to build something that people actually want or give a crap about. So I wish early on that I had done more of that so that I had an appreciation in say my early twenties rather than my late twenties about how hard that is, but also how fun it is and how much more rewarding it is than just collecting information. All right, last one, and it's yours. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I think I might've told like an abbreviated version of this story in like the third or fourth episode of my podcast. So apologies for, for anyone that's heard it before. So I guess there's two, right? Like there's an ongoing kindness, which is just my family. Like I was like uh, Omar from The Wire, like a man's gotta have a code. And like my code is very family centric. And I get just a tremendous amount of support and love and care from my family, my extended family, my wife, Lauren, who you know well, my kids. So like that is the perennial kindness, you know, that go, it's a two-way street, but that's the most important kindness in my life. The singular act, which I think is an interesting one with kind of a sad ending, is when I went to Notre Dame. So I mentioned earlier that I was a very bad high school student. I was a legacy at Notre Dame. So Ignatius Aloysius O'Shaughnessy was a huge benefactor of the school and very close with Father Ted Hesburgh, who's sort of the modern patriarch of Notre Dame, an amazing guy. 
And so there's an O'Shaughnessy Hall at Notre Dame. <laughs> and so in my arrogance in high school, I just figured I would get in to Notre Dame without really compelling GPA or I had good standardized scores, but terrible GPA. And so one day I got a call from my dad and he said, Hey, you should come home. There's a lot of thin envelopes here in the mail for you. So I came home and I literally got rejected from every single school that I applied to all in the same day, which was a bad day. So I, I reapplied to some other schools, I actually called Notre Dame and said, I want to transfer there. What schools have like compatible curriculums? So I went to a small school called St. Thomas in Minnesota for my freshman year. I'm actually from Minnesota. It's where a lot of my family is from as well. So I went there, had a great experience, transferred to Notre Dame. So now I'm a sophomore at Notre Dame. And as anyone knows that went to college, like I almost stayed at St. Thomas, even though I got into Notre Dame because all these incredibly tight friendships. I even had a spot in a house, you know, the whole deal. And so I transferred not knowing anybody and having missed that freshman integration experience. So I had a cousin, his name is Tim. And he's, I call him a cousin, he's the third cousin, part of this big O'Shaughnessy clan, who was there at the time, and a couple other cousins there at the same time as well. And he was a year older, so he was a junior. So the big act of kindness was that for my first six months there, he was my cousin, I didn't know him really well at the time. It was probably his responsibility to like take me out a couple nights and have some beers with me or something. But instead, what Tim did was he, almost on a nightly basis for six months, was like my social coordinator. He would text people when he wasn't going out and say, hey, you know, Patrick's coming out. Like, you know, he's going to be here at this time. Will you make sure you're there and like show him a nice time? He spent so much time and effort integrating me into his group of friends. It was staggering, like so far and above the call of duty for what he needed to do with no expectation of anything in return. He introduced me to my wife. He introduced me to my best man, to another one of my groomsmen. This just incredible, consistent act of integration for me. Tim sadly died a few years ago and I gave like a, a night before sort of eulogy type speech about this and I told this story. And afterward, like half the freaking place, and it was hundreds and hundreds of people there, came up and had some similar story about him where it was totally different circumstances, but the story was one of integration. And like, again, with no expectation of anything, like he just did that for everybody. I just think that's sort of like emblematic of every kind of kindness, which is just doing something that's good for other people with nothing really in it for you. And Tim had a huge impact on my life. So that's my answer to my own question. Awesome. Well, Patrick, really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on the other side of the mic. Great time. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you know a manager you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out or ask the manager to reach out to ted at capitalallocators.com. We greatly appreciate your ideas and we'll do our best to help foster transparency and communication across the industry.